All right, so let's turn our attention to the Word of God. We welcome you back to our Mountaineering with a Master series. And once again, Jesus is looking for some upwardly mobile climbing companions this morning. Here's what the Word of God says. When Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed a hillside. Those who were apprenticed to him, the committed, climbed with him. Arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and taught his climbing companions. And so uh, since September of 2019, we've been looking at what he was teaching his climbing companions. We're only about 25 verses into that. It's a very slow pace, but very rich pace, I believe. And so we're back into the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew uh, chapter 5. We've been learning that being a climbing companion of Jesus today, at least in the uh, American church, at least in the American church, is often measured by how much we know and how we behave. It's all about information and behavior. It's all about content and conduct. It's all about knowledge and obedience. By the way, anybody else need some sermon notes? Why don't you lift your hand there and we'll get you some if you need some. They're rather extensive. I'm just warning you these next couple of weeks, I'm going to do a bit more teaching than I normally do as we consider this topic. So if you need some, just lift your hand and we'll get you some sermon notes. So if you missed that first barrage, uh, often as we think about spiritual formation and spirituality and discipleship, how do we measure that? How do we quantify the fact that we're becoming more spiritual or we're becoming more like Jesus? And uh, being in the American culture that is often measured by what we know and how we behave, It becomes a matter of information and behavior. It becomes a matter of content and conduct. It becomes a matter of knowledge and obedience. So if I know more, I can be more like Jesus. If I obey him more, I can be more like Jesus. Are those true statements? Those absolutely are true statements. Uh, They really are. There's nothing new in the times of Jesus, the teachings of the rabbis and their misuse actually of scripture, what we call the Old Testament, about sin in particular, focused on the external, on the outside, on the behavior end of things. And so uh, while things like hatred and lust that we've uh, had looked at and will be looking at weren't good, they were not thought of as true sins because you couldn't see them. It was kind of like out of sight, out of mind. You can't measure a person's hatred or a person's lust. Now, you can measure other things like the Ten Commandments when they're breaking those. So, by the time Jesus arrives, the teachings of the rabbis had twisted Scripture uh, to uh, focus so much on the outside, upon the works side, that they were missing the point of God's grace and his love. And so Jesus steps into that whole mess, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But our conundrum today is that while knowledge and behavior are crucial, they are insufficient. Knowledge and behavior are very critical, but they are insufficient. Why? Because I know people that can quote the Bible who don't live anything like Jesus. I know people who, in fact, obey the letter of the law without the spirit of the law and become very judgmental of others who don't behave like you're supposed to behave. And so this becomes the difficulty. While those are very important, knowledge 
and obedience, they are insufficient. So Jesus uses most of this most famous sermon ever given uh, to expose the flaw of attempting to follow God with just knowledge and obedience. If we try to follow God with just knowledge and obedience, we become religious people. What is religion? Religion, very simply, in its essence, is man's attempt humanity's attempt to get back to God. We understand we are separated from God because God is holy. We are not. Innately, we know we are different than God, so we try to get back to God. How do we try to get back to God? We like, uh, let's go to church more. Let's have another Bible study. Let's give more. Let's serve more. Are those bad things? Absolutely not bad things, but they end up on the works side of things that if I just work hard and I can gain God's favor and his merit, he will like me and love me because of what I do for him. Absolutely corrupt thinking when it comes to understanding who Jesus really is. Careful, careful, careful. Religion is humanity's attempt to get back to God. Doesn't work, never will. That's why he sent his son, Jesus, to save his people from their sins. And to make a way back to God. Because we can't get to him. I don't care how good we are, how hard we work. It's never going to work. So God says, I'll take care of the problem. I'm going to send my son for you. Because you can't get back to me any other way. And so, in this part of his teaching, chapter 5, verses 21 through 48, six times, if you look into your Bibles or your electronic device, six times Jesus says, you have heard that our ancestors were told. You've heard it said that our ancestors were told. Six times in just those handful of verses. He's referring to what they've been taught by the religious rabbis, which focused on the external. He sets the record straight by blowing up everything with the subjects of anger, sexual stuff, divorce, speaking the truth, revenge, and one that I've been wrestling with now for many, many months. If you truly want to be my follower, you have to pray and love those and do good to those who hate you and hurt you. That's not so easy for me. It's not so easy for me. So, This is where we're headed in the months to come as we look into this passage of Scripture uh, because this is what Jesus is talking about. You can't work your way back to God. You can't do it enough. Be good enough. This won't happen. And so that's where we're headed. Why? Because life is too short for broken relationships. Unresolved conflict is no fun. We were created for more. We were created for better And that's what Jesus is talking about in all of this stuff. How to have right relationships with God and with others. Is there a fractured relationship that God is bringing to your mind right now? Family member, a friend, a neighbor, co-worker, who is it? Is there a fractured relationship that God is bringing to mind right now? What needs to happen? Now, a couple of weeks ago, I've been out for a couple of weeks. Sam unpacked that principle when talking about settling disputes quickly, right? Do it now. Don't type it. Don't tweet it. Don't text it. That's ridiculous. It's not going to mend a relationship. Go and talk it out. Do it now. Do it for God's sake. Do it for your sake. Do it for their sake. Do it so others might know that we are Christians by our love. But just do it. And now the master is going to get after some more religious nonsense. 
and these next weeks are going to be rated PG-13. Why? If the church isn't going to talk about it, someone else already has. So let's go where angels fear to tread, and we're going to talk about sex. Let's talk about sex, okay? It's not a word you hear in church very often, and yet it has so much to do with the way we live our daily lives, and Jesus is going to bore down right into the core of our heart and reveal some stuff. We live in a sex-saturated society. Nothing in there. What God meant to provide beauty, to provide fulfillment, has been totally trashed. From billboards to social media to bathroom walls, TV shows, movies, top 40 music, the message is insane. It's always the same. Indulge. Go ahead. Enjoy. Instant gratification. Very little consequences. Uh, just do what you want to do. So in our sex-crazed culture, we are, barbar- we are literally bombarded with sexual missiles coming at us from all sides all the time. Advertisers know it, and they use it to the best of their ability. They know sex sells from pizza to Porsches, from Pepsi to Poupon, uh, but especially when it comes to health, beauty, and clothing, everything has this body image sexual twist to it. And they know what they're doing. They know what they're doing. So Jesus' followers need to search the scriptures and ask some really tough questions. What is my attitude towards sexuality? Is it healthy? Is it healthy? Does it need renewing? Do I get my understanding from TikTok or from the Word of God? Do I see this issue as a part of my commitment to Christ? Am I really aware of God's standard for sexuality? Do I realize the consequences of not taking God seriously and the plan that he has put into motion? Do I understand all this? Now, as a follower of Jesus, I cannot exist in a sex-saturated society by sticking my head in the sand and thinking it's not really a big deal or maybe things will get better. They won't. They won't. Gabriel Brown wrote a book entitled The New Celibacy, How to Take a Break from Sex and Enjoy It. Is abstinence the right response? I hope not. Right? But what does Jesus say about this? Here's what he said. And this is our passage for the next few weeks. Matthew 5, 27 to 30. You've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery, but I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for you, your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, this is a really intriguing passage of Scripture. And we're going to take this apart chunk by chunk, not this week, because we don't have time next week, maybe. Maybe, maybe week three, but nah, we'll get to it. Here's how the message, that paraphrase puts it. I like this as well. You know the commandment pretty well, too. Don't go to bed with another spouse. But don't think you preserved your virtue simply by staying out of bed. Your heart can be corrupted by lust even quicker than your body. Those ogling looks you think nobody notices, they also corrupt. Let's not pretend this is easier than it really is. If you want to live a morally pure life, here's what you have to do. You have to blind your right eye the moment you catch it in a lustful leer. You have to choose to live one-eyed or else be dumped on a moral trash pile. And you have to chop off your right hand the moment you notice it raised threateningly. 
That has to do with the preceding verses. Better a bloody stump than your entire being discarded for good in the dump. That's pretty clear, don't you? So what are we going to do with this? But before we break down this passage, and we're going to take it apart word by word, because what Jesus says is very, very important. Before we sift through those nuggets of truth, I think it's best that we kind of pan back, get the bigger picture of what has happened, and why is Jesus mentioning this. So let's put the topic of sex in some scriptural context. So in order to do that, we have to go back to the beginning, the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis, and see sex from God's perspective. So let's take this morning a quick spin through scripture to see what the Lord has to say about our sexuality. Number one, sex is a gift given by God before sin entered the world. Sex was here before sin. So what do you think sex was life like before sin entered the world. What do you think anything was like before sin entered the world? Think it was much different? Absolutely it was good. It was good, God said. It was good, he said. Right? Yeah, when he created it. So understand this is like uh, 101 talk, right? But I think it's necessary because of the mistruth and what the world is bombarding us with. We have to come back to what the truth is from scripture. So we know from the creation account found in this chapter, Genesis chapter 1, that God spoke. He said, let there be, and there was. He said, let there be light. Was there light? Where did it come from? God. It's called ex nihilo, Latin for out of nothing. He spoke and it came out of nothing. He said, let there be. Things happen. We also learned that his creation then included a series of separations. If you go into Genesis chapter 1, you see a whole bunch of times the word separated is used. Right? So, God separated light and darkness. He separated heaven and earth. Day and night, morning and evening, clouds and sea, water and dry land, living creatures found in the seas, on the land and in the air. And finally, in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we see... The pinnacle, the ultimate of God's creation, that is humanity. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, again, just not assuming anything, uh, human beings were created separate from the animals. We did not evolve from the animals. We were created by God separate from the animals. Just want to make sure we're all on the same page. This is the Bible. This is not me, right? So, God creates human beings separate from the animals, but we are also told that there's a separation of those human beings into two sexes, male and female, both uniquely and mysteriously made in God's image, what we call, or in Latin, the Imago Dei. Now, he created them male and female. There is no third, fourth, or fifth category in which you need to identify. You're either male or female. This is God talking, not me. He wasn't confused. He made you male or female. It was all part of his purpose and design, right? The confusion that is out there should not exist in here because in here we submit ourselves to the authority of the Word of God. And the Word of God says he made them male and female, okay? 
right? I'm going to give you a chance to respond in a moment to this, right? I want to make sure we're all on the same page. So as male and female, we bear the image and likeness of God, male and female. Now the diversity, the distinctiveness, the separation which God created, male and female, come together through unity in marriage when the two become one flesh. When the two become one flesh. Now this coming together as one flesh in sexual union, and put some more verses in there for you to look at, brings forth the new life that will accomplish God's plan. What is God's plan? God's plan is clearly stated, again in Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, most theologians would say this is the only command that God gave that we've actually done. Okay? Or we're working on it. We're working on it, right? Okay? So, he said, your union together will produce offspring so that you can multiply and fill the earth as I desire so that I may have more to join me in eternity. It's an incredible plan. Absolutely incredible plan plan. Now, enough of that. Let's get back to the sex talk, okay? The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall in deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs, closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. Woohoo! At last the man exclaimed, This one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. You feel shame when you're naked? Honestly, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think if we're honest with ourselves, there's great shame. Well, we're going to be talking about this over the next couple of weeks and that which God had created, which was good. And it's been perverted and twisted. By the way, let me just say this about that. And next week I'm coming after the singles. Because if you think this is for married folk, <laughs> right? And I don't care about your race. I don't care about your age. You say, oh, I'm too old to have sex. Don't make any difference. God created us as sexual beings, and this is going on in our minds, whether we're actually doing the act or not. He made us sexual beings, and he had purpose and intent for that the entire lifespan that we live. So I'm not tolerating any of this, okay, I'm too old, I don't need this. Right? Let's look at what the Word of God says, right? They felt no shame. So our sexuality was not a bad idea. It wasn't a cruel joke, nor was it an afterthought or an accident. It was God's idea right from the start as a part of his creation. Now, God set boundaries for us to express all of our God-given appetites. 
And he's given human beings appetites, including sex. Within those boundaries, there is freedom and intimacy. There is joy and there is purpose. Outside the lines of God's perfect design, uh, there can be a lifetime of heartache and sorrow when we're pushing against God's plan. How many of you tried to push against God's plan before? How'd that work for you? Nah, he's undefeated, right? Right? You get him in the cage, he's not going down, right? He's going to take it. Yeah, yeah. And so, number two, sex is reserved for marriage. Therefore, a man leaves his father and mother, embraces his wife. They become one flesh. The two of them, the man and his wife, were naked, but they felt no shame. And we'll talk about that in more detail when we break down that passage. What did Jesus say about adultery and what is adultery? What is fornication? What's the difference? God has designed this so there's a specific expression of our sexuality that is blessed. Outside of that, not so much, but it's happening a lot outside of that. So what are we doing with this? Okay, we'll be looking at that. Number three, sex can have serious consequences when not done God's way. This is from Proverbs 6. For sound advice is a beacon. Good teaching is a light. Moral discipline is a life path. They'll protect you from the promiscuous woman, from the seductive talk of some temptress. Don't lustfully fantasize on her beauty, nor be taken in by her bedroom eyes. You can buy an hour with a prostitute for a loaf of bread, but a promiscuous woman may well eat you alive. Can you build a fire in your lap and not burn your pants? Can you walk barefoot on hot coals and not get blisters? It's the same when you have sex with your neighbor's wife. Touch her and you'll pay for it. No excuses. And Jesus said, I tell you, if you look on a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her. So how are we going to put this together? What are we going to do with this? How can this all work out? This is going to get real intriguing. And so touch her and you'll pay for it. No excuses. And so, we have been denying or disobeying God's plan as a culture. And because of that, we have all kinds of difficulties, which include things like sexual addictions that are really getting interesting, broken lives and runaway guilt. They're all rampant. We have unwanted pregnancies. We have abortion. We have uh, infertility. We have birth defects. And the other thing, I just want to touch, touch on this one. STDs. What does that stand for? Sexually transmitted diseases. Now, for most of us, this doesn't even hit the radar. But if you're in the medical community uh, in Sheboygan County and outside, this is rampant. STDs are rampant. Now, for most of us, this isn't our world, but you talk to anybody in the medical profession, this is getting ridiculous. The most recent year, 2019, the STD surveillance report said that STDs have reached an all-time high for the sixth consecutive year in this country. It's just skyrocketing. 2.5 million reported cases of chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis, the most three common types of STDs. A nearly 30% increase in these reportable STDs between 2015 and 2019. It's just going straight up. And the sharpest increase was in the case of syphilis among newborns. 
for those of you who have any kind of medical background, I'm talking uh, to you about congenital syphilis. Infants being born with STDs. More and more prevalent in our society and in our culture. Now, again, we can bury our head in the sand and pretend in the church bubble that this doesn't happen. It is happening, and it's happening frequently. It's happening to our kids. It's happening to our grandkids. It's happening to... Why? Because we've chosen to disobey what God had intended. And so that leaves all of us with choices to make. How are we going to express our sexuality? So those cases of congenital syphilis have quadrupled between 2015 and 2019. You know what it's like to have an infant born with an STD? It's, it's not outside of God's grace. It really isn't. But it's just devastating. It's just devastating. We cannot, we must not ignore God's boundaries. So here's the way Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 6. Run from sexual sin. We're going to talk about this uh, in more depth. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you, if you're a Jesus follower, and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. You do not belong to yourself. It is not your body. I don't care what protest sign you want to put up about your body. Understand what the Word of God says, please. You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. Hmm. Now, the word sexual immorality there is the word pornea in Greek, from which we get our word pornography and all kinds of sexual perversion, which we're going to talk about next week, which is going to be a little more graphic. So I'm just giving you a heads up about that. See, my purpose in doing this is to begin to generate conversation in your own home, right? And with others, so we can talk about these kinds of things. Because they're being talked about. <laughs> in different contexts I think we ought to be talking about from the truth of the word of God I really do I really do now number four sex is a celebration when it's done God's way sex is a celebration when it's done God's way now I'm going to read you a couple of passages from the Song of Solomon you generally won't hear a bunch of messages from the Song of Solomon because it's like hyper weird uh, unless you're a uh, ultra-conservative theologians say this is pure allegory on Christ's relationship with the church. I'm like, uh, I don't know where you come from, but uh-uh. I'm not buying that for a second. This is the Word of God, and it is what it is. And when I read the Song of Solomon, I don't see anything in there about Jesus' relationship with the church. Now, it's a great application, I understand that, but that wasn't the intent. God's telling us the beauty of sexual, being sexual beings when it's done his way, right? So here's the Song of Solomon. Uh, 
May your kisses be as exciting as the best wine. Yes, wine that goes down smoothly for my lover, flowing gently over lips and teeth. I am my lover's, and he claims me as his own. Come, my love, let us go out to the fields and spend the night among the wildflowers. Let us get up early and go to the vineyards to see if the grapevines have budded, if the blossoms have opened, if the pomegranates have bloomed. There I will give you my love. Ooh, this gets really steamy, and I don't know if you're hooked on trash romance books, right? If you're hooked on trash romance novels, this is, whoa, this is really hot stuff here, right? This really is. And God put it in there for us because we're sexual beings, right? And let's try another one. You're so beautiful, my darling, so beautiful, and your dove eyes are veiled by your hair as it flows and shimmers like a flock of goats in the distance streaming down a hillside in the sunshine. Now, if we were in... Israel, this would make a whole lot more sense. Uh, (laughs) Your smile is generous and full, expressive and clean. Your lips are jewel red. Your mouth elegant and inviting. Your veiled cheeks soft and radiant. The smooth leaf lines of your neck command notice. All heads turn in awe and admiration. Your breasts are like fawns, twins of a gazelle, grazing among the first spring flowers. The sweet fragrant curves your body. The soft spice contours of your flesh invite me, and I come, I stay until dawn breezes light and night slips away. You're beautiful from head to toe, my dear love. Beautiful beyond compare. Absolutely flawless. Aren't those beautiful words? Aren't they kind of freaky? You know? And if I were a betting man, I would say, Most women don't see themselves like that. But let me tell you this. Most guys see you like that. I'm talking about your husband. And we have bought into this cultural garbage. But the man is seeing you like that. You may say, oh, that doesn't, that doesn't do it. I'm not like that. I'm, oh, I'm fat. I'm overweight. I'm out of shape. I'm this. I'm that. I'm that. I'm that. I'm that. This is a spiritual issue. This is a spiritual issue. So, let me ask you this. I've told you that God wanted his plan fulfilled to go multiply and fill the earth. Then we turn to the Song of Solomon and we read this stuff. Let me ask you this. Is sex, according to God's plan, for procreation or for pleasure? Because we got folk that are Jesus followers that say a whole bunch of stuff. And there's some that would say sex is reserved for procreation. In other words, if you're in the childbearing years, right, and you're ovulating, then let's have sex because that's what God intended for. It's for procreation. We're going to try to fulfill his command, right? A multiplying and filling the earth. There's some folk that just limit it to that. There are. There are others that go way the other extreme and would say, oh, it's just for pleasure and miss the whole part of what God put it there for in the first place. So what do you think? You say pleasure? Primarily. I'm not talking exclusively. Do you think 
our sexuality as a gift given from God is primarily for procreation or pleasure. Connection. Something beyond the act of intercourse. Heart connection. The two will become one. And when God says the two will become one, he's not talking simply about the physical act of sexual intercourse. He's not. He's talking about two becoming one, which is a whole different sermon. So it does go well beyond the act of sex. Agreed. Anybody else got an opinion, thought? Oh, sorry, Nate. <laughs> Try it again. Um, so God gave us gifts for us to enjoy uh, in regards to who he is, and he wants us to procreate. So assuming that sex is a gift from God for us to enjoy, therefore pleasure, and we are to procreate, so therefore you're saying that it's both at the same time. So you see it as both. Okay, Correct. good. Anybody else got an opinion? Yeah, uh, we're not putting this up to a congregational vote, by the way. <laughs> I'm just interested as to what you're thinking. That's what I'm interested in. I, I think it's good to like take into consideration that not everyone is able to procreate in general. And some, like let's say like atheists, for example, will do sex anyway for pleasure, and that can be a sinful, so it can be neither on the situation that is a really interesting thought yeah I like that thank you Elizabeth that was very good good anybody else got an opinion about that and believe me we're going to talk about this next week why does talking about sex make us so uncomfortable this is like oh when God talks about it all the time and the world's talking about it all the time it's everywhere. Yeah. She just, raises, she just raises an interesting question. Paul says it's okay to abstain, mm-hmm. especially if you're doing it for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. So how does that fit into the idea, is sex for pleasure or pre- procreation? Isn't there another alternative, as she mentioned? Yeah. That's a great comment, so come back next week because I'll be in, I'll be, uh, in 1 Corinthians 7, and we're going to look at that exact passage of Scripture. Yep, hold that thought. That's a great comment. Okay, I just want to get you guys thinking, right? I just want to get you guys thinking. I want to get you a little more comfortable. I want you to, to stimulate you to talk about these things. It's important to talk about these things because we are sexual beings. Now, oh, Barry, sorry. I'm going to talk about it right now. This is kind of the end of the message. It is the end of the message. All right, let's get this out of the way now. Okay. The marriage bed must be a place of mutuality. This is 1 Corinthians 7. The husband seeking to satisfy his wife, the wife seeking to satisfy her husband. Marriage is not a place to stand up for your rights. Marriage is a decision to serve the other, whether in bed or not. Abstaining from sex is permissible... 
take notes here because I'm going to ask a question. Abstaining from sex is permissible for a period of time if you both agree to it, if you both agree to it, and if it's for the purpose of prayer and fasting, but only for such times. Then come back together again. Satan is an ingenious way of tempting us when we least expect it. Now, what does this say? Sexual needs are to be met within the context of a marriage relationship. That's what God says. Now, uh, reality says I hardly ever get a couple that comes to me for premarital counseling who isn't already sexually active. Jesus followers. Okay? Some churches choose to kick them out. Some churches say... Uh-uh. Can't happen. Uh, we're all over the board with this thing. And that's why we need to talk about it. So what do we do with that? Okay. According to this passage of Scripture, sexual needs to be met within the context of marriage. Stepping out of this context of marriage looks like two things. Adultery and fornication, which we're going to talk about next week. And neither partner should refuse sex except for what? Has any of you, anybody in this room, ever refused sex for prayer and fasting? I had a church leader in a previous church, and he said... Every time my wife, and I have, my wife and I have sex, we stop and we pray before we have sex. I thought that is just as weird as weird can be. I'm like, are you, are you kidding me? I, I, I understand the idea of making a spiritual experience. I, I do appreciate that, but I just think, <laughs> not me. <laughs> uh, not going to happen. Not going to happen, right? But Paul is laying down a principle here, is he not? There's a time to say no for sex. You both have to agree, and it has to be very targeted for the purpose of prayer and fasting in order. We are uh, abstaining from this connection so we can make this connection with God together as a couple, right? So this is what the Word of God says. Now, the way that I uh, look at this then is that sex then or sexual activity and this can be defined in a whole bunch of different ways, is a thermometer of how a relationship is doing and can never be the thermostat. What's the difference between a thermometer and a thermostat? Yes. Yep. What's the purpose of a thermostat? To control, to control the temperature. And in any relationship where sex is used as control, it is out of bounds. It is out of bounds. And so the idea being, uh, this needs to be talked about, it needs to be discussed, it needs to be put on the table. Uh, But sexual activity or lack thereof can be a measurement of how the relationship is doing. Now, yeah, my birthday, 66. Am I slowing down? Yes. But you know what? My brain doesn't slow down. Denny, am I right? When you think about sex, Denny's not, and he's just grinning here like... (laughs) Right? And that's right in itself because God created us as sexual beings, correct? And just because we get older, 
this is still happening. That's why Jesus said, if you look on her, and that's what we're going to explore next week. What does that mean? You look on a woman with lust in your heart. Huh. Huh. And so marriage, right, Hebrews says, should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. That's a warning. It's a warning shot. The marriage bed, literally in Greek, means sexual intercourse. Uh, we've kind of padded the translation. But this is the way, literally, if I were to bring my Greek text up, I would be reading it for you. Marriage should be honored by all and sexual intercourse kept pure for God. Imagine that. Sexual intercourse be kept pure for God. Within the confines of marriage, God sanctions, he blesses sexual intercourse. He created, he started it, the world's perverted. Jesus is going to speak into it. And now that we have a little background of sex from Scripture... You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery, but I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I'm done. I just want to say this. There's not a guy in here who's not committed adultery with a woman in his heart. We are all guilty and as we're going to see next week, we're all murderers as well because you've hated somebody. And Jesus says you're a murderer. That's why he came. That's what his forgiveness, that's what his grace is all about. And grace is going to win. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the church must be redemptive when it comes to this. There's a better way of doing it. There's a God way of doing it that makes a whole lot of sense. And that he pours out his blessing upon. And that's all I'm asking us to consider. That's all I'm asking us to consider. Not under guilt and shame. That has no purpose or place here. Right? Because Jesus sets us free. If we come to him. And ask him to heal us. That powerful name. And you can be forgiven right now. Right now, if we just but ask. All right? All right. I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> Marilyn, Marilyn, Marilyn. All right, any questions? I just want to make sure what we've talked about this morning is clear. I'm not asking you to re-preach the sermon, nor am I really all that interested in your comment. I just want to make sure we're clear. Do you understand what the Word of God says? Is it clear? I think God's clear when it comes to this. It should be a celebration when it's done God's way. But man, we are fighting it, folks. We are fighting it in our culture. We can do it better. And we can do it with grace. Because of the grace that he's shown us, Bob.
Yeah, if you understood what Bob is, is saying and asking, he's saying, look, uh, even among those who don't follow Jesus, uh, when you commit adultery, it's not a good thing. So that moral code, according to Romans chapter 2, has been written on the heart of every individual. Why? Because we are created in the image of God. Therefore, we bear his likeness. And so his code is a part of our DNA. And so there is never murder accepted in any culture in the world as being, okay, that's okay, go ahead and murder somebody, right? Why? Because that has been embedded because we are created in the image and likeness of God. And therefore, even an unbeliever who will deny God will have that same reaction when God's moral code is broken because that's embedded in us. And that crosses cultural lines. And having lived outside of the United States, I can attest to that. It is true culture to culture. So good comment. Good. Anybody else? Because she was taken, made from the man's lung, uh, ribs. All right, I'm going to let one of our resident theologians answer that. If man was created in the image of God, how can woman be created in the image of God? Because she was taken from man. And what did God say after he created woman and when it was all wrapped up? This is all very good and we know from verses like Galatians 3.28 for example in Christ there is neither slave nor free Jew nor Gentile male or female for we are all one in Christ Jesus right the comment here is that uh Women are better than men because we were created out of dirt and they were created out of a bone. (laughs) That's okay. See, that was a comment I wasn't looking for. (laughs) But I do have a question. Yes. I understand completely what you're saying here about what, what the word says. But extrapolating that, does that mean that monastic movements are not necessarily Christian? Or are not following the word of God, better put. Yeah. So what if uh, you are part of uh, a group that says abstinence is God's plan for me? You know, I can't deny that. I have no problem with a monastic movement. uh, But can a monastic lifestyle change a heart? It possibly can, but it is not guaranteed because next week we're going to look at one of the church fathers and how he responded to this exact passage of Scripture and what he did to himself. It had never changed his heart. And so we have to be careful. We constantly are trying to change the outside. Jesus is going after our heart, you see. That's a very good point. All right, last one, Nate. Did you have your hand up? So the question is, and this, I will end with this, by the way. <laughs> Why does Paul say, I wish you were all like me, meaning unmarried? That goes back to 1 Corinthians 7, the passage that we were just in. 
Why does he say that? So we can focus purely on Jesus and live a life devoted to him. Now, do you think, okay, let me just flip this around. Do you think if you live a single life, your entire life, that you are less in God's sight because you never married? Okay, and we all agree with that, right? Let's flip that thing around then. Does being married make you more like Jesus? <laughs> yeah, if we look carefully at the situation which Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, and you read carefully both of his letters to the Corinthians, there was much sexual immorality. And so he is simply expressing the fact that if you want to live a fully devoted life, get rid of everything. Was Jesus single? Yeah, depending on which movie you're watching and basing your theology on. Oh, give it a break. Uh, yes, he was single. Was he complete and whole being single? Absolutely he was. No sin. And I'm going to tell you next week. Now, nah, wait till next week. Uh, all right, enough. These are really good questions, by the way. Really good questions. All right.